Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review the 1955 noir crime mystery adventure mother goose tale thriller thing, The Night of the <laughs> Hunter. The Night of the Hunter with Neon Jesus, Neon Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. It's really dramatic music. Yeah. So this is the oldest movie we've watched to date. Like uh-huh. the it, it is the earliest in time. It's three years older than plan nine from outer space and, and it is so much better so 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 much better but there are still so many trappings of the 50s i feel like so this movie okay, go on it really like puts you in a different time period from the word go with the very brassy horn section overblowing intro music and title card and like just here are the people who worked on the movie we're putting this at the beginning there's nothing else on the screen here's the people here's some brassy trombone music here's somebody talking directly to camera which this that must have just been a thing like Um. Because Plan 9 had the amazing jerk-off, or whatever his name was, and... You can't say it didn't happen. Exactly. (laughs) And this time you had um, eerie, single-woman, high-pitched hymnal singing, and then somebody, like, giving a Sunday school lesson, but they're staring into the camera. So, like... I, I guess in fairness, movies were still kind of a new thing, or at least they were like getting better and broader. And, and I don't know, I guess in the fifties it was just expected that, okay, here's a little prologue intro sequence. That's going to like hold your hand as we go into the crazy world of the movie. It kind of feels the framing device feels really extra and like, that's one of the few parts of the movie that I would really strip away if I was going to peel it like an onion. I would take off the framing device because it's just so unnecessary. The movie itself is fine to carry itself. Yeah. And and so that's why I truly, I wonder if it's just like a thing you did and there really mm-hmm. needed to be a, a lack of subtlety about welcome to the the pictures that move on the screen mm-hmm. you know other than that just just going through the whole thing um y- you gotta love a, a fully recorded um live score but <laughs> kind of in the same lack of subtlety way this movie tells you how to feel just through the oh, music yeah. Oh, yeah. Because when there's about to be a dramatic moment, there is straight up at one point in the movie, the music actually goes dun, dun, dun. Right. And I was like, wait, this isn't a joke. This is a real score that we're observing. Okay. All right. 
Yeah, that's the thing. So much stuff that was like would become contrived and become like a joke in later time periods. It's like, no, this is why it's a joke because we need sure. to have when when the villainous evil uh, Harry Powell walks onto screen, we need the like chilling violin music to make ev- sure everybody knows this guy is evil. Okay. Andy, okay. Okay, Andy. Andy, okay. Maybe we do, though. Because other than that, Harry Powell just by himself, if you remove the trappings of music and the shots of how he's carried, he just seems like a very tall, nice gentleman with a really good voice. Maybe it's just the fact that He's so handsome and so, like, charming that we really do need the music to set, like, oh, no, this is a bad fucking dude. I would agree with you if the very first time he appears in the movie isn't him driving alone saying, you know, God, thank you for putting me on this earth to kill women. I sure do hate them. There's sure way too many of them, and they make my blood boil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it does take a moment before he's like, and you know what my opinion on women is, Lord. And then it cuts to him in like, I'm assuming a gentleman's club of some persuasion and like him ogling a stripper and being like, oh, nasty. Which is like, why? Because he's a bad, bad man who fondles a switchblade in his pocket and, like, has some very deep and appropriate of the time issues towards women. But you're right. I mean, there is, like, there is, like, ten seconds where he's just driving along and he's talking to himself. And it's creepy and unsettling for this man to just be loudly talking to God. But it probably came off as creepy and unsettling for different reasons than when this movie came out. Wait, why are, why is it creepy now? Maybe what I should say is like creepy to people who are kind of like-minded to you and I. I don't know, just just the moment he came on screen and is just talking out loud to God, I was like, "Oh, that's like he's alone." He's not talking to God and someone else is listening to him and they're in like a prayer group or something. It's no, he is alone talking out loud to God, I am unsettled by this. This is where I, this is the part I remember where you weren't super, super religious in growing up. You were just like lowercase r religious. When I talked to God and I was growing up, it was internal monologue. Yes. (laughs) Or I guess not internal monologue, but internal uh, conversation. Just saying, <clears throat> that isn't everyone's experience. Fair enough. Well, and okay, so the reason this movie struck such a chord with me is because, you know, my religious upbringing was not Pentecostal. I will say that. There are straight up points in this movie where it comes across as very snake tempty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh yeah, there's a there's a scene where everyone's like shaking a little bit and they're talking really loud about the Lord. Like that's a whole other that is not my story, that is not my experience. 
But it, this is not the first time that I've seen a random human being talking to God out loud. So when you were like, that's concerning, I was like, oh, is there a deeper like meaning there? Is there like a deeper thing? Because it's so normal in in my growing up to be like, oh Lord, what am I gonna do? Just help him. <laughs> God help him. God help him, because no one else can. You know what? The, thank you for reminding me of the uh, extra perspective there. Um, but I think either way, like whether I, I was put off immediately, but I think that's also partly because like I knew enough about this movie to remember that Robert Mitchum is the bad guy. But so you. E- oh, OK. Even e- even without that you get about 10 seconds of him before he's like, yes, I am evil misogyny made into a human body, (laughs) but at the risk of getting out ahead of ourselves real quick, the night of the hunter is the story of the Reverend Harry Powell, who is not actually a Reverend, um, but is instead, instead is a um, serial killing con man who travels uh, 30s Midwest America killing women and trying to find a $10,000 bounty that his old cellmate had stolen and left with his kids. Conversely, it is the story of John and Pearl. I want to say the last name was Harper, but I've already forgotten. Uh, mm-hmm. Harper, yes. John and Pearl Harper the aforementioned two children who try to warn their mother and hide their father's stolen loot as they are just tormented and chased across the country by Harry Powell. That is a good summation. I do think it's relevant to note the reason their dad, John and Pearl's dad, Mr. Harper, stole the ten thousand dollars is because he wanted to feed all the little starving children that he saw around their town and he didn't want his kids to join him so he pulled a bank job (laughs) and i know how you feel about bank jobs they should be done Down with the one percent. <laughs> Listen to me, John. This money here, we gotta, we gotta hide it before they get to me. There's close to ten thousand dollars. Where? Under a rock in the smokehouse? No, no. Under the bricks in the grape harbor? No, no. They dig for it. Ah. Uh, I mean, absolutely. But so, okay. This is a, this is a fascinating movie, and we both walked it's out so of it good. really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the fascination I know for me and, and you agreed was the, the religious subtext. This is a movie full of yeah. religious iconography and character. And I was trying to figure out, it seems like the thesis statement was being wary of performative, Christianity and the actual true good being moral good. Mm -hmm. 
and so the 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 difference between like being bright and loud versus being more quiet but actually good and honest in your intentions and and john and pearl's dad um you know who's in there for five seconds ben harper who we see him come home with the loot tell his son and daughter never to tell anybody where it is and then we see him in jail for five seconds before he gets hung he makes the most of his screen time by having this monologue with harry about how he just hates this evil and sadness in the world that that has these kids go hungry and Mm -hmm. wants to protect his family and so he does a bad thing for the right reasons Mm -hmm. he's chaotic good yeah yeah he's chaotic good in the same way that like harry pal and especially um the all, all the people of the town especially icy and walt spoon are um lawful evil yeah well and it's so it's so interesting because we have icy who is both of our least favorite characters oh hey icy, icy. <laughs> icy's like for our listeners who haven't seen it icy's like the ultimate karen of 1955 (laughs) like she's very in everyone's business picture doris day with a stick up her butt yeah she's like she's the the town matriarch literally just running around telling people how they should feel and like just throwing her opinions about you know willa is a waitress who works for her and she's like it's not right that your husband got hung because now you don't have somebody to help you raise your kids oh, hey, there's a handsome gentleman and oh, he's a Christian. And just doing and that to everybody. <laughs> yeah, she's busybodying, which is, you know, the Bible has words about that. But also I think it's interesting we have our ultimate Christian at the end who is this kind, polite woman who has opinions about things but holds them into herself, talks to herself a lot, but kind of holds them to herself and repeatedly throughout the movie says, oh, bless them. Oh, bless her. People do silly things. But at the end of the day, she's the one who takes in tiny children and is just like, yeah, I'm basically running a non-papered foster care system out of my house. Yeah, like she even, I think she has like a line about it's like, yeah, this is my lot in life. I just take in the wayward children and and care for them the best I can. And I'm, I'm stern and I'm strict, but I'm also kind and I'm also forgiving. And yeah, Mrs. Cooper is the other half along with, uh, you know, Ben Harper of like that, that actual honest morality yeah because the entire time i'm watching this you know she only shows up in the last uh third i'm sitting here being like this is fascinating this is so edgy for 1955 (laughs) that like the writer and director were able to make this movie that just totally like gives the finger to organized religion and the performative like uh just 
bullshit of it all except it's not and that's how it was able to be made in the first place probably is because they then held up a no here's what an actual christian is like and here's the good for which we can reflect the bad against yeah it's a it's a morality tale and i think about so many parables like i see is totally the pharisee who came into the temple and was like Yes, hi, hello, here I am. Here is all my gold coins. And then the little old man who walked in the temple and put in his two brass whatevers. And Jesus pointed at him and said, look, those two brass whatevers were literally all this man had. And he gave it to the church. Whereas Icy's over here with her home business with her husband and they're running an ice cream shop or whatever and she's judging every single person in town right and more than that there's like there's no thought that goes through her head that is like critically backed up in any way she be- no. she believes that ben harper was evil because he robbed a bank period full stop And then all it takes is somebody that she believes to be a good guy because he says the word really loudly and and sings hymnals in Harry Pal. All it takes is a word from him after Willa is gone to be like, oh, yeah, Willa ran off in the night with a guy. And she's like, well, gosh, oh, my goodness. Willa was such a ill-tempered, awful woman to do that to you. I only knew her her entire life and I only like have employed her for five years, but God to hear that she did that to you. I spit on the ground. She walked on. And then later in the movie, once she realizes that she was saying that to a killer of women, all she can do is scream at him in court and drop a lynch mob. So this movie has some cultural ties. Well, absolutely. To what? Go. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking of, like, current politics of how, like, you know, cancel culture is like, oh my god, this person did a thing. And sometimes it's so fucking valid. But sometimes, like, I recently listened to um, Shameless Plug for uh, You're Wrong About. They had a whole podcast about the cancel culture around the Dixie Chicks. Mm. Or now, now the Chicks. And one of the things I talked about is, like, they said this thing, and then it got blown out into this entire giant rigmarole of, like, their career just disappeared overnight. Yeah. And I think it has a lot similar to that idea of just, like, oh, if you do the wrong thing in our pursuit and are perceived the wrong way by the wrong people, that's it. That's the end of you. Yeah, and just, like, so much... Because I, I think really what Icy represents, and Icy, and to a lesser extent, her husband, and, like, all the people of the town, but especially Icy, is, like, this this unthinking, uncritically analyzing moral majority. Because there are so many instances through history, you know, you just brought up one with the chicks. Um, I was recently listening to another podcast, shout out to behind the bastards. I was listening to an episode about the satanic panic of the, uh, early nineties. 
And mm-hmm. it's the same exact thing where it's like, oh, a bunch of people are told this thing and then just immediately start running with it as fast as they can and being very vocally against and hateful of the thing without ever actually thinking about it for more than two seconds. Oh, absolutely. Because when you boil it down, human beings want to be my pack versus your pack. They want to have decisions made easily for them because... It's not a, it's, it's, it's almost like at our base, we're looking for who are my people. And this movie has a lot of points and no, you have to examine the subtext of what this person is doing. You have to examine the context and really play with that. You didn't know you were in for a philosophy lecture, and yet. I mean, I had a pretty good idea, and I was looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, this, because this was only ever a movie that I ever heard about because it's like, oh, yeah, Robert Mitchum is terrifying in Night of the Hunter. And it's like, oh, okay. Oh, he super is. I guess he's terrifying in Night of the Hunter. And and, in any of my light coming across of this movie in my life it was never like oh yeah and this is a fascinating examination of like morality and what it is to truly be good oh and by the way robert mitchum is terrifying (laughs) sure but he super is though he super is and i can see why like he is the major sticking point of the film because he's just so charismatic first when he's trying to charm you but then also when the light switch goes off in his head and he is psychologically abusing his newlywed bride uh, before you know physically abusing and later murdering he is just so mm-hmm. captivating to watch which makes it really interesting to me that he was blind stinking drunk towards the end of filming no it's my shame it's my crown of thorns. I must wear it bravely. What could have possessed that girl? Satan. No. Which, okay, tell me everything. Well, just so, like, Robert Mitchum was, like, a big name in, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s. He was a, he, the, the man had a massive career and was, like, a face and a name. And as with, oh, so many male Hollywood stars of that Hollywood generation, you know, in his personal life, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll and all the booze he can drink. And then a little bit more. So it it was just so fascinating to like read some of the behind the scenes things about this movie. Um, Cause first of all, director Charles Lawton is apparently a dick who like would yell at kids (laughs) yell at his child actors and like yell at them to get away from him when they back talk his direction um, was just like kind of an asshole, never made another movie again, at least as a director. So in the beginning of filming, Robert Mitchum is like basically directing the kids, directing John and Pearl himself as their scene partner and like helping them out and all that. But because sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, this movie went slightly longer than they anticipated to film it. And at one point, Mitchum just kind of started getting bored, started spending all day drinking and would come to set shit faced 
to then like, you know, do his, his pages for the day culminating in um, an afternoon where he shows up just blind, stinking blackout drunk. And a producer is like, yeah, we're not, it's the fifties, but we're not letting you near the kids. And like, you clearly cannot work today. Go the hell home, sober up. We're going to finish this in the morning. To which Robert Mitchum then goes over to the producer's car, opens the door and pisses all over the front seat in like vengeance. And then because like, what are you going to do? It's Robert Mitchum. I assume all that happened is he was then sent home, came back the next day and everyone acted like it didn't happen. And they finished the movie. (laughs) (laughs) The balls, the audacity, the I'm, I'm bigger and better than you. And, and I'm going to like, just go ahead and do whatever the hell I want because I'm going to be making movies for the next 50 years. I mean. But like also I read that they were trying to do something different with promotions. Like trailers weren't a thing, I guess. And so instead they had them go, they, they had a uh, Robert Mitchum and Shelley Winters go on like their era's version of the tonight show and perform a scene. And they were both super nervous to be on live television. So like, Aww. Her Brooklyn accent came out. He was forgetting lines. He was doing the whole thing about, oh, this hand's love and this hand's hate. And he held up the wrong hand. So he holds up the hate hand and is like, this hand's love. And the audience laughs at him. Oh. I would watch a documentary. I would read a book. I would watch a a, a, a fictionalized movie about the making of this movie. It just sounds so fascinating to me. I kind of love that, but I also feel like him showing up drunk on scene and the fact that I couldn't even tell for the last half, short of the fact that he was just genuinely unraveling Oh yeah, as a character. So it's kind of simultaneous, assuming they shot in chronological order. I mean, I, but... I wonder some of the, like towards the end, the part where he gets trapped in the cellar, and for like, it, it, there's, uh, there's such a, there, there's such a, um, emotional dissonance between the tension of that scene with the kids. And then they break a jar of peaches over his head and he like is flopping on the floor and slipping on mud and like screaming like an animal. <laughs> yeah. Unraveling is the perfect word for it because it still works, but it's just like, oh, holy, uh, okay, I, uh, whoa, that was loud. Mmm, it's a bit much. It's a bit much, you know. Happens again when he just there, he just misses their canoe, and he's standing there in the river, just screaming like a howler monkey. <laughs> I will say there are so many dramatic things about this movie, but one of my favorite things about it was how subtly good the camera work was. Mm -hmm. Like, it wasn't dramatic. It wasn't overwhelming. There weren't any points where it was like, oh my God, that thing. 
But there were so many tiny little moments. Like there was one point where um, in this, in the honeymoon scene between Harry Powell and Willa, he's talking to her and he's, you know, having this big confrontation and the way the lighting is in this A-frame house, it's on the back wall and it looks like a chapel with an organ. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just subtle. You don't really catch it. And then you catch it and you're like, oh, that's fucking brilliant though. Yeah. And like the, it's in the, that bedroom again later on, right before Harry kills Willa. Like doing that scene and having the camera be on the opposite side of the room and like you see just so much of that room. You see the floor, you see the roof, the the actors are tiny in the frame and it's just, mm-hmm. it, it creates this unsettling effect because you're not supposed to see that like that. You're supposed to see close-ups and mid shots. And so for this super wide, you're sitting there like, oh, okay. Um, the other part that really affected me, you know, at the end, there's the part where Miss Cooper is sitting on her porch with the shotgun and um, Pal is sitting on the um, the tree trunk watching her, and the way it's lit, Miss Cooper, our bastion of morality, our hero, is in pure shadow, and our mm. our villain, our our antagonist, is the one who's lit. When you know the the morality of light and dark, it's supposed to be the other way around. This movie has a set number of tricks, I feel like, but it Mm -hmm. uses all of them brilliantly. Yeah. You know, I I could not have filmed this. (laughs) And that is, on Cult Fiction, one of our things of how well was this shot? Could Andy film this? Yeah. Absolutely. I wouldn't have... That came across super condescending. I'm sorry. I don't mean that I don't think you're a brilliant cameraman. It's more like you with one camera versus a camera team. Let me clarify that. Oh, no. I I take no offense at all. Because, yeah, for for anyone who hasn't listened to, you know, all of our episodes, that that reference might go over their heads. You know, it it is a thing where if a movie is not particularly well done, I sit here and go, oh, I could have shot this. I never would have thought to have like built up a super accurate looking corpse of one of my main characters and then go into an underwater set and spend like three minutes with the camera underwater, just looking at this sunken boat with a dead woman in it. A dead woman who looks so convincing that I thought it was the actual actress. One of the producers thought it was the actual actress. And you're sitting there going, holy shit, Shelly Winters can really hold her breath. <laughs> it's almost like cutting and editing is a thing. Well, even absolutely. But just like even still, I'm sitting here being like I was counting the cuts because I was sitting there, the, the the model is super convincing looking. I was sitting there being like, mm-hmm. okay, even if there's like somebody in a scuba tank, uh, uh, yeah, even if there's somebody with a scuba suit and an oxygen tank directly out of frame, like we haven't had a cut in like two minutes. This is nuts. <laughs> I love the way you think. It makes me very happy. I was just like, 
yeah, it's, I don't know, they did a thing and movie magic was made. I was more focused on, oh my god, how did they get her hair to look like that? How did... This is such good writing. Because it's just, you see her, and then it immediately cuts to something else. And it's like, we we watch her corpse, and then it's something else all over again. Right. No, absolutely. It's, I wish it, I remembered what it cut to, well, but it's, I Well, it's the fish hook, you know? Yes! Oh my god, that's right. You You get the moment where Harry pulls a knife and brings his hand down and you never actually see him stab her because Hayes code. And then you hear a truck going off and then you see this fish hook get caught around the frame of the window and the camera zooms out and you're like, Oh, there's Willa dead in the lake. Holy shit. They actually killed her. And then cut to, quote unquote uncle birdie fishing and looking into the clearest lake i've ever seen and being like uh oh shit well if i report the body they're gonna think it was me so i'm just gonna not report the body i'm gonna go drink would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand left hand the story of good and evil yep can we rewind (laughs) yes you said something about Hayes Code. What do you mean? Um, so the Hayes Code was a... It, it's a bit of film history. It's a thing that was basically the the written down morality rules that films had to follow. Um, specifically, mm-hmm. I, I pulled it up here. Um, the Hayes Code was a set of guidelines for the content that re- was released by movie studios in the United States from 1934 to 1968. And it was stuff like, you know, you can't have any explicit nudity. There can be no overt portrayals of sexual behavior. You can't have adultery because, like, th- our government was so concerned with this art form breaking down the actual moral religious backbone of the United States. So it was stuff like, you know, homosexuality can't be depicted. You can't have a scene of childbirth. You can't talk about sexual hygiene. You can't have an interracial couple because it's the (laughs) fifties. Crimes can never be like portrayed in a positive light. And, and that one in particular, I'm sitting here being like, that's so fascinating when like Ben robs the bank and explains his justification, but then you're sitting here and everybody in the movie continues to demonize him. Yeah. Oh, and I wonder if that's why. That's absolutely why. Hmm. You know, ridicule of the clergy was not allowed. Words like God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, hell, and damn could not be used unless it was in connection with religion. There's so much in this movie in particular, it's, it, it kind of like set my mind ablaze of like, good for you, Charles Lawton and whoever else wrote this. Like they walked the exact line of what was allowed to be shown on a movie in that time frame and, and managed to have this like 
this fascinating take and, and have a, a tone of voice that was still critical of religion in a, in a period mm. of time when like that just wasn't allowed. Interesting. I, I, I think it's fascinating that I only knew the, ho- the Hayes code as, Oh yeah, we can't show gay people. Um, and we can't have gay relationships, but I didn't know it extended to an entire set of morality rules. Oh yeah, no, we we can't we can't have sex. It's the same reason why like any sitcom in the fifties, their beds are apart. Ah, Ricky and Lucy. Exactly. Um, you know, we we can't show sex. We can't make crime seem cool. We we can't have an interracial couple. We can't have gay people. They don't exist. Um, because the despite the fact that half the industry, yeah, you know, watch watch Hollywood. Up until the last like two episodes, it's a really fascinating, accurate portrayal of all this. <laughs> is it? Is it? Eh, fascinating portrayal, at least. I was ah, uh, there we go. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was just like since we've only the only other movie. Um, that is so old we've seen was Plan 9 from Outer Space and that was such a tire fire of its own accord. Um, You know, it's hard to compare it to anything. I'm trying to think if we've watched anything else that was that old because it it stopped in the mid-60s and then all of a sudden, like, films were allowed to get art house and show nudity and, and, you know, become more in line with what we're used to today. So, yeah, this is really the first movie that even can be an example of that but it was a really stupid really like reductive and small-minded policy um in hollywood for a long time and if nothing else this movie like i think brilliantly sidestepped it how do you not have a sex scene oh you have like the newlywed husband be this deeply troubled misogynist who's like i know what you're doing devil woman with your body and you're expecting things and i'm a good christian man and all that and we're not gonna put any more babies in this world because i'm here to just have these two babies that are already existing with you and you should feel bad for having urges yeah yeah let's let's get back and talk about that like did what was your take on willa's just complete like psychological breakdown oh bless her heart she just needed to get laid yeah like her she already goes through the trauma of holy shit my husband got arrested for something dumb that nevertheless, I kind of agree with him on, but I don't want to say I agree with him on because I, I don't know. That gets complicated. And now I'm left with these two kids and I don't know what to do. But my friend who's really overbearing is like, what you need to do is get married. You obviously need to get married. And here's this guy and he's fine whatever i guess we'll get married oh all the what also by the way all of a sudden i love him yeah that because go ahead (laughs) oh i was just saying because she she needs someone to put all of these feelings on and then he comes at her and he's like you know we're not gonna fuck and she's like i need 
the hormones. <laughs> the hormones. I need them released. We're not going to fuck. I'm going to make you feel awful for even trying to sleep with me, your new husband, on our wedding night. How dare you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, you know, I, I was expecting Willa to be like our heroine character. And even in the beginning, yeah. when she first meets Harry Powell, she's like, I don't know. I don't trust him. What if he's only here to try and find my husband's money? And then, like, there's a single conversation where he's like, oh, no, I'm not here for your husband's money. He threw it in the river. And she's like, oh, OK, you're hot. She, like, finds you're his hot. And by blade. the way. Oh, she finds a switchblade. She finds a switchblade and goes, ah, oh, men. <laughs> I mean, I can't comment. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I know how many knives Alex has. I don't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, but just like this, this, this poor woman who is turned into this like proselytizing fire and brimstone big tent revival snake handling like like she is so psychologically damaged she doesn't notice her husband walk up to her with a knife and then stab her like i think that is such a insidious part of powell's evil you know there's 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 trying to kill the kids there's being a, a con man and then there's just like oh this is what he does and this is what he was put on this earth to do is like destroy women in and out yep and he's he's proud of it is the other half of the thing is that he's like well you know lord women are the worst there's too many of them that's why you put me here Good lord. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Which, okay, I understand this is the point of the movie is to say, hey, this man is bad. But there is also... <laughs> there is some that didn't age well with Ben does say... Like, he does very much talk to John as like, hey, you're going to inherit this money. You're my son. You're going to take over the family line. And John's like, but shouldn't you give it to Ma? And he's like, well, you got common sense and she ain't. But also, when you look at it and you examine the movie, it's later proved to us that Willa does not in fact have common sense. So take or leave that one. Yeah, in the world of the movie, that's sure right. <laughs> I think that becomes more than a thing on the writers being like, oh, the woman would be hysterical. There's no way she would be, there's no way she would have the guile to hide the money. Exactly. And there's also a casual commentary on the romani on the romani people as the one to just like blame for random crimes yeah a car or a horse goes missing that's all we know a horse goes missing and the gossip of the town is and i quote gypsies stole a horse it's like what the hell yeah guys? The <laughs> yeah they drop the g word real quick and easy and it's like oh uh. that's 
That's fun. Yeah. Love, love that we're saying that. Love that that's just something we throw out there. Okay. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's still 1955, I, I suppose. I, I was going to say, I, I suppose we should be glad that it wasn't a more um, stereotypical of the time racial epithet, but then I'm also realizing there's not a single character of color in this movie. Nope, sure isn't. You know, it's it's the 50s depicting the 30s, so we're going to have some problems. But also, the 30s, a time period where a boy could have a cup of coffee with a stranger in a boat, just because, like, everyone says his name is Uncle Bertie. There's no goddamn way he was actually his uncle. <laughs> well, he was his father's, like, dock buddy. Because he says, like, oh, dad's boat is still okay. And Uncle Bertie is like, and sure will be as long as Uncle Bertie is still around. And I was like, oh, okay. So this kid, like, probably grew up knowing this dude. But at the same time, like, yeah, it's a little suspect that this kid is like, cool, I'm just going to run to your boat when shit's going down. Yeah. I did miss that line, and that officially makes it less creepy than um, Hogarth being taken to the diner. So, <laughs> uh, who would win in a fight, John or Hogarth? Oh, that's a great question. John, John is a little more cunning, I feel, but okay. but John also just kind of stands there several times when like. Harry Powell could absolutely do some more life destroying and John just kind of stands there waiting to see what's going to happen. And I feel like Hogarth would never let that like even get close. So I'm going to take Hogarth. He is, he is the clear choice. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Speaking of John, you know, our, our, our child lead, our, our, our boy who I, I kept going back and forth if he was a good actor or not. Um, I just wanted to talk about a, a few quick things, you know, to tie all the religion back up. I, I think it's a really cool thing how John's trauma resurfaces at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, the first time we see him, he's watching his dad get arrested and he has the really shocked don't. Which again, no. again, couldn't figure out if that was good or bad acting or not. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was good writing at least that to then at the end see when Harry is also brought down by the police to have this this breakdown where even even the man who's been terrorizing him the man who he pretty much knows at that point killed his mom to then still have the emotional breakdown of seeing a father figure a forced father figure but a father figure go through the same thing and just to be totally like given PTSD by it. I thought that was a really effective part of the movie. Um, even if mm -hmm. it was slightly off put by the actual acting. Well, and I think it's more effective because we've watched this person be terrible. Yeah. The entire movie we've watched him give John no end of reasons to dislike him and not stand up for him. 
And yet here at the end, when he's getting arrested, John says, no, don't, because he's so upset by the idea of police throwing down a fully grown man. And that's just what he saw with his father. Right. And he sees his dad again in Harry and, and runs to him screaming, daddy, no, I'm sorry, dad. You know, just really Here, take the money. Exactly. Yeah. Really effective moment. Um, and then I'm not sure if I would call this next part effective or not, but it, it has to be talked about in a movie that is so focused on religion and so like, it, it's such a key central thing. You know, one, uh-huh. of, one of the last things we see is John give an apple to Mrs. Cooper as a Christmas gift. Uh, Huh. They they had had the moment earlier about oh get get me an apple and and get one for yourself and let's talk about pharaohs and Moses and and like some deep stuff kid they had that moment but still for it to be like the best gift I can give you is an apple that that had to be there had to be something there I think it's like the the best gift I can give you is the fruit of knowledge right because that's what mm. the apple when you look at the biblical interpretation means is like, I can give you knowledge. I can give you wisdom. Right. I can give you awareness and context, which especially makes sense for John because Mrs. Cooper is the first adult in his life. Who's also encountered Harry and not been immediately like, oh, yeah, he's perfect. He's fine. Oh. He's great. He's God's gift to man and women and everybody. And Mrs. Cooper is the first one who's like, yeah, no, I don't trust you. I see the look on that boy's face and he is upset. I don't trust you. It's like someone who, like, decides who they do and don't hang out with by based on their dog. Sure. Mrs. Cooper is the first one who's like, Nah, I see the I see the hackles raising on his back. We're we're not friends. I love that. I didn't consider that take at all, but I think you're right. That that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of which, because I am me, um, I pulled a reading rec for this episode, um, based on a live science article. I'm trying to do more articles because I'm aware that a reading rec for a book every other week is not sustainable for our listeners. <laughs> but articles sure as fuck are. Um, there is an article on live science talking about the idea behind if the Bible, the Torah, the first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are in fact true what would be the forbidden fruit because it sure is fuck not an apple oh, because interesting. apples don't grow in the middle east um so there's arguments that it's a fig there's arguments that it's a citron which is kind of like if a lemon and an and orange an had a baby orange. right correct but anyway neither here nor there but the forbidden fruit definitely wasn't an apple. It was a mistranslation when um, the Roman emperor Constantine had the Bible um, translated into Latin. Fascinating. Okay. 
I'm here for it. Sorry, I just nerded out so hard. Why are you apologizing? That's awesome. Anyway, neither here nor there. The point being, I think that apple is supposed to symbolize like this idea of Mrs. Cooper being the real deal. I like that. And that kind of ties together the um, the thesis I was trying to state earlier of like performative religion versus actual moral goodness. And, you know, yeah. Ms. Cooper showing up randomly at the back half, back third of the movie. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, oh, we're, we're doing this now. Okay. Um, but she helps tie the movie together so much and you see her in everything she does with her interactions with poor Ruby and protecting John and Pearl and being the one who finally like takes down Harry Powell before the cops do. I really enjoy mm-hmm. that. Yeah. You know what else we really enjoy? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> And it needs to be said, I, I this this was in the IMDb trivia. Apparently Shelley Winters, who was Willa, is like mm-hmm. an even bigger Kevin Bacon than Kevin Bacon. I love her for that. Yeah, it's great. She does a great job. Apparently there's like 10,000 different iterations of like, oh yeah, this actor's connected to Shelley Winters in a way. But... This isn't uh, Six Degrees of Shelley Winters. It is Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. And so what do you got? Hmm. Yes, indeed. I can pull that up for you. So Peter Graves, who was Ben, was in Looney Tunes Back in Action with Steve Martin. Oh, God. He must have been ancient. (laughs) He was. Um, But Steve Martin was in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. With Kevin Bacon. Nice. All right. So that's uh, that's two? That is two. Correct. Excellent. Okay. Well, I also did it in two. Um, you know, I, I went with Robert Mitchum. I sat there and thought, I'm going to bet that it's the star is the easiest way. I, I had no idea about, you know, Ben Harper. But... Robert Mitchum was in Tombstone with Bill Paxton, who was in Apollo 13 with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. But you know what else is a giant hell yeah? Uh, The Oscars we're going to give this movie. Oh my gosh, it's like, you know me or something. (laughs) This far into the show, I I would hope we both know the order this goes down. Well, sometimes you can switch it up, whatever. That's fair. <laughs> Speaking of switching it up, whatever. What is your Oscar? Well, we've we've talked about it. I think we started talking about it. It really needs to be said. My Oscar for Night of the Hunter is most meddling old Biddy going to icy. <laughs> I hated She's her. She's the worst. I hated her more and more with every scene and it really needs, it cannot be overstated in the movie with a psychotic serial killing con man, the terrifying Robert Mitchum, the real primary antagonist is icy. 
yeah. who shows up at the trial and screams that he's a blue beard and then gets an actual honest to God lynch mob just because like mm. she's upset that she was wrong and that she trusted this guy and that he tricked her. So. Yep. Yep. Was your Oscar a little yep. less uncomfortable making? I mean, mine was just that this movie has the worst beginning, but a good end. What do you mean? Oh my god, the framing device is so unnecessary. And ah. then we just have, like, kids in space! Like, the kids are just, like, floating heads among the stars, and it's really creepy and weird. Oh, yeah. And, the, and I hate it. That's absolutely fair. I I think that's Mrs. Cooper, like, starting oh, yeah. it off. And it's all of the other kids that, like, live at Miss Cooper's house. Like, yes, I understand it later after watching the rest of the movie. But it also feels like It's a Wonderful Life, where the movie is started with the two stars. And they're talking because they're angels. And they're talking about, like, saving this guy's life. Right. Well, again, like, shoot, It's a Wonderful Life is older than this movie. It came out in 1946. So, again, like we didn't trust audiences to just like go into the story. Which is so interesting because human beings are so focused in learning that it's like, if you present us with a story, we're like, yes, please tell me more. It's kind of, it's kind of our whole deal. So the fact that we felt like we needed these ridiculously long throat clearing, that's what it is. That's why I have no patience for it. Because it's throat in clearing? In in poetry, you're taught to, like, really carefully observe the first two lines of your poem. Or at least, like, the first stanza or first chunk of your poem. To make sure you're not just being like, okay, <coughs> so here's the context. Uh, okay, got it. Here's the, here's the whole thing of, like, this poem. And oftentimes, my poems are so much better if I take that first chunk and I'm just like, and fuck you, you go elsewhere. Well, I I definitely see that because that's literally every film like from that time period had to do that. It's it's the teacher like clapping her hands and going, okay, class, okay, here's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's even that's even better of a metaphor. It's like, hey, pay attention. Here's the story. Speaking of, here's the story. Is this cult? I think so. Uh, it it made less money than it took to make, but also like movies just worked differently in the fifties. Um, you know, it made mm. like a couple grand in its theatrical release, but, uh, exchange rates. And also just like, it was a different thing, but technically it does fit the financial requirement. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we both found it quotable. We, we didn't mention this, but we had the same quote. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to say it or shall I? Uh, I'll go ahead and say it. My whole body is just quivering. With cleanness. Yeah, that's not what your body is quivering with, babe. (laughs) That's sex endorphins with no orgasm. Have fun with that. And she did not. She super didn't, unless she got, you know, release in the lake. 
mean, she was dead by then, so. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> I, I There are so many movies, like, a, a movie has to be, like, a classic for, you know, a good 65, 75 years later. It's still something people are talking about. You know, it's a Wonderful Life, Citizen Kane. You know, even good movies of the era, people just, they fade out of public consciousness. And sure. The Night of the Hunter didn't fade out of public consciousness, but also it's not like on the level of It's a Wonderful Life. It's this movie that people remember because Harry Powell was so terrifying and like it created the trope of getting shit tattooed on your knuckles. Um, you know, the Simpsons made fun of the whole love hate thing. Um, you know, it manages to be like topical and referenced without being a direct, like classic. And and because of that, I would say it is cult. All right. I'll take it. Excellent. <laughs> I will allow it. Well, I'm glad I don't have to fight you on this and and argue my point more stringently. Nah, but watch yourself, McCoy. (laughs) I will watch myself. I will watch myself as we do what we do on every episode of Cult Fiction and figure out what we're going to watch next. We didn't like that one? It was a weak segue. Boo. Well, they can't all be winners. So let me, let me. Well, let's hope our next movie is a winner. Let's hope our next movie is a winner. That See, that was really good. Bravo. Props to you. <laughs> it's like, I know how to segue. It's like you do. Um, you know, you mentioned Anaconda. We've got a chance because there are currently 291 movies in the Hollywood crypt. Anaconda being one of them. But we're going to use a random number generator to find out what it is. And that is number 160. Now, 160, it turns out, is not Anaconda. <sighs> yes. It is a, uh, a musical that I know you deeply love and I have never seen. What? Next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be watching <gasps> The Fantastics. Fantastics. <laughs> kind of the I just ate a plum. Kind of the ah. emotional opposite of Anaconda, I guess. Ah. I just ate a plum two days ago and I thought this plum is too ripe. Oh, I'm so excited. Ah. <laughs> that will make much more sense when we watch the Fantastics, which I am so deeply excited to hear your thoughts about i might still own this i have to plunge the depths to see if i still own this but i'm pretty sure i own it okay um for people who don't own it for people who don't own it where can we watch it it looks like it is available for free on pluto tv uh, Amazon Prime Video with a premium subscription or you can rent it from YouTube Apple TV or Vudu Nice. Awesome. Well, since you know nothing about this movie, I will say 
That's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can follow, rate, and review us. Blah, 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 blah. We'll close the crypt. <laughs> but join us next time for when our plums are all too ripe and we remember, remember. And I'll let you finish the rest. Oh, I was so proud. You just went through that so seamlessly. <laughs> I know. It's like I do this a lot or something. Well, for Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Yay! Hey, 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 hey.